children love her. When I went medicine, God children died for me. Room 58. God children love her. When I went medicine, God children died for me. Room 58. God children love her. Children love her. God children love her. Children love her. God children love her. Room 58. God chosen lover. When I went medicine, God chosen die for me. Room five eight. God chosen lover. When I went medicine, God chosen die for me. Room five eight. God chosen lover. Chosen lover. God chosen lover. Chosen lover. God chosen lover. Room five. All right, let's get to it, fam. How you doing this morning? Let me know in the chat how you doing. We're in 1 John chapter 2. And um, the last thing that we talked about was about overcoming the evil one, which, weirdly enough, transitions very neatly into what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about the enemy's strategy. The devil and the kingdom of darkness really does have a strategy. Um, they do operate by a, a set of, uh, I don't know, uh, ways of, of approaching humanity and there's there's a there's a goal the enemy has in mind there's a there's a method he has in mind there's a way that he accomplishes what he wants to do in the world uh, among humanity in rebellion to God and I pray that today we expose that for those that struggle heavily um, if you're a normal human being you struggle with the flesh you struggle with the things of this world you struggle with giving into temptation and fighting off the, the desires of the flesh and and what the world's throwing at you and what culture is saying is okay we're fighting deception and sin and darkness every single day whether you like it or not spiritual warfare is a non-stop constant thing for the life of the believer and so we're in first john chapter 2 let me transition. This is for those who really are looking for practical uh, instruction and principles on how to fight back against the flesh, the enemy, the world, the, the temptations of this life. All this different, all the different things revolving around that. If the sound is only coming out of one side of the headphones, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on. Um, I wish I could fix it, but we're too deep in, so... Hold that one headphone real tight. <laughs> Don't let it fall out. Okay, First John chapter 2. Um, the last thing that John said was, Hey, I write to you, young men, because you're strong. And why are you strong? Well, the word of God abides in you. So here's practical instruction number one. As believers, we are, like the strength that God provides us is found in the knowledge of his word. I'll say it like that. If you want to be strong, you got to know the scriptures. You have to know your father. You have to know what he says is true. And so we are as strong as um, we are knowledgeable of the scriptures. Not to say that God can't provide strength outside of that. But the, the main method, I believe, 1 Peter or 2 Peter confirms this, that uh, everything we need to live a life of, maybe I'm conflating two scriptures, hold on. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that we need for life of godliness through the knowledge of him, okay, who called us to his own glory and excellence. So scripture teaches that all the blessings, all the, all the beautiful experiences that God has for us and, and all the benefits of being a believer are found packaged in the knowledge of his word. And so he tells the, the audience, hey, you're strong because the word of God abides in you or and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. And I don't think the three ideas are disconnected. I think the strength to overcome the evil one is firstly found in Jesus's ultimate victory over darkness. So I have overcome the evil one through Christ, but I daily overcome the evil one and this world and the, and the flesh and sin by the word of God that abides in me. And so you're going to find a strong connection between strength, the word of God and victory over the enemy daily. I'm not talking about your eternal victory over Satan and death and sin. Jesus sealed that. Okay. I, I don't have a hand in that. I just get to receive that in faith. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me highlight this for you guys. Um, I ran out of colors. <laughs> I'll just use this. That's key, man. That's absolutely key. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, then God's love is not in them. Let me take you back to verse 4. John already talked about being perfected in the love of God. He said, whoever keeps his word, which we talked about in the last episode, in that person that keeps the word of God, believes the gospel, truly the love of God is perfected in them. Okay? And so this is not a new idea of the love of the Father being in a person. But he does say, do not, it's a command. It's not an option. It's not a, maybe if you're feeling, do not love the world. Now that seems to fly in the face of what Jesus says in John three sixteen. God so loves the world. It does, does God love the world? Didn't he love the world enough to send his son? Are we supposed to love the world too? John's not talking about the people here. He's not talking about the people who are in this world, who God loves very much and longs to save and sent his son to die for them. He's talking about an actual system, an actual way of thinking, which he's going to frame up as antichrist. Antichrist is a way of thinking that is in opposition to Jesus. It's a heart posture. It's a, it's a mentality. It's a framework. It's a, it's a, a way to view life. It's a worldview, okay? A system that's in opposition to God. And John is saying, don't love that. And he's going to clarify, or the things in the world. So there's a difference between the things in this world and the world itself. And so what I want you to see is right after he says, hey, you and I have overcome the evil one. Praise God. It's not my efforts. It's not my straining. It's not my strength. It's the grace and the victory of Jesus that gives me victory over the evil one. But he's making a connection between the evil one here and in verse 15, the world system. Okay, let me take you to John 12, 31. Out of Jesus' own mouth, he talks about the ruler of this world being cast out. Okay, which seems to relate to what he says uh, to the 72 or the 12, I forget which one. When he sends them out in power and cast out demons and they come back and they go, Jesus, oh my gosh, like we cast out demons. They actually listen to our authority. And he goes, hey, this is pretty cool, boys. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Um, fall from heaven like lightning. That This might be... A, um, connected to that. But Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. 
there is judgment coming upon the world, specifically the unbelieving generation of Israelites in Jesus' day. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So the evil one in 1 John, okay, connects to the world in the sense that from Jesus' own mouth, he is the ruler of this world until Jesus comes back to kick him off. Now his, uh, what I will say is Jesus has set in motion his dethronement, meaning Satan has no power, no authority, and no legal rights on the believer. We know that. So why is he still running around rampaging, prowling around like the lion that he is with no teeth? Why is he still, you know, doing the things he's doing in the world? He's a defeated foe and he knows his time is short. And he knows it's, it's done for him. But he's bringing as many people down with him as he possibly can. Trying to rob God of as much glory as he can until his official dethronement happens. Where Jesus sits ultimate. Uh, scripture talks about how he's sitting there at the right hand of the Father until um, God makes his enemies his footstool. Okay, so there is Jesus' uh, death and resurrection sets in motion, activates, you might say, the ultimate device, demise of the enemy. But as believers, that victory is final. It's final for us. It's good as done. Like in the Old Testament, God would speak of future battles in, in, past, in past tense sometimes. He'd talk about how they're already defeated, but Israel had yet to even go out into battle and fight the enemy. That's just how awesome God is. <laughs> this is what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We used to follow the course of this world. Okay, Notice there is a course this world is headed down. right? Following the prince of the power of the air. That seems to at least be connected to the ruler of this world in John 12. And the spirit of Antichrist in 1 John and the evil one in 1 John. These all seem to come together in the same person or at least the same uh, um, kingdom of darkness. There is a prince of the power of the air who's, who's kind of ruling this world system. And this world is in sway and deception following the course that he wants them to go down. Okay, so there is biblical precedence to say that the evil one... And the world that Jesus has overcome, that we have overcome, and that John says not to love, that they're connected. The world and the evil one go together. So you might say the world is the system or the framework by which the enemy um, operates. It's that rebellious, unbelieving mentality of, I do what I want, it's autonomy, I don't do what God wants. It flies in the face of the gospel. It flies in the face of God's sovereignty and God's power. And it ultimately says, I, am an, I stand in opposition to God, his gospel, his son, his work, and all that he wants to do in the world. And I'm opposed to him. The world is in opposition to God. Why? Because they're following the evil one and the course that he has set for them. He's influenced the world to go down the path of a lot of wickedness and sin and evil. And so John... Cautioning the believer says, don't love the world. Love the people. Love the people who are in deception. Love the people who are under the sway and the influence of the enemy. Okay? But also, don't love the things in the world. Now, before you decide what that is, let's let John explain himself. He says, if anyone loves the world, just to be clear, the love of the Father is not in that person. In other words, God's love has not been perfected in that person through faith. 
Otherwise, they wouldn't have this continual lifelong love and acceptance for the world system, which is in opposition to God. You would be opposed as a believer. If I have faith in, in Jesus and I'm on his side and, and I stand with the king of the universe, then I, by, by my association and loyalty to God, I stand in opposition to the world. By default, because they are in opposition to God, the world system, right, at large. And so therefore the world is, is at odds with me. And so John is making it clear that if you have a love for the world, this continual acceptance and, and approval of the things the world says, and, and you love the world as a lifelong thing, well, that proves that the love of the Father is not in that person. Now, he's not saying that if you have any draw to the things of this world, or, or you struggle with worldly, sinful passions of the flesh, that you're not a believer. This, this idea of loving the world, okay, He's going to break down, but before we get to that chapter, chapter 3 and chapter 4, I'll just make it very clear. To love the world doesn't mean I struggle with sin as a believer. It doesn't mean I have no pull towards the things of this world. To love the world means my life is lived in love for the things God is opposed to. And if your life is summed up by the things God is opposed to, and a love for those things, then maybe the love of the Father doesn't dwell in you and you don't really believe the gospel like you think. Otherwise, your relationship with sin would have changed by now at least a little. Or your relationship with the world system at large, the, the antichrist mentality and philosophy, that relationship with those things would have changed by now. You know, you'd see a growing conviction of sin by now. You know? So the love of God relates to the things that I pursue and and find affection for and find uh, a joy in. It's almost like to come to Christ in faith, okay, is to, um, here's what happens. When I come to Christ in faith and I receive the love of God packaged in the gospel and I believe I'm receiving and being satisfied by the love of the Father, Okay, now that I'm loved by God, now that I'm under the love of God in a beautiful relationship and friendship with Him, I no longer have a desire to go and live for the things of this world because I'm satisfied. And it's almost like the love of God redirects my passions. The love of God redirects the desires I once had so that I slowly, over time, as the love of God starts to transform my heart and my way of thinking, I start to desire the things God does. And I start to hate the things God hates. Verse 16. Here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. We're going to expose the enemy's strategy. Does the devil have a strategy? Absolutely. Does the kingdom of darkness have this one main strategy they use against humanity to rob God of glory, keep people under sin, and ultimately lead people into death and destruction? Yes. And we're going to expose that. It's actually found in verse 16. Okay, so if you go, John, why is it that someone who has received the love of God in faith cannot live in love with the world? Why? He would say, because or for all that is in the world. Okay, I'm going to highlight that in pink. Every instance of the world is highlighted in pink. Everything in the world. And he's going to qualify what he means. The desires of your flesh, 
the desires of your eyes, the pride of life, what you want outside of God without him so that you remain autonomous. Those three things are what he means by the things in this world. Now, those three things, those three main categories for sin can be broken down into millions of different subcategories within the world. You know, sin doesn't have just one form. It manifests in countless different forms in our world system. But at the core of every single sin, you'll see either this, a desire of the flesh, a desire of my eyes, or the pride of life. Every sin at its core fits under one of these three categories. That's what John is saying. As believers, we should not love or pursue or spend our life going after. So he says all that's in the world, specifically these three things. John right now is opening the curtain and exposing the enemy. And the enemy is like, oh dear, oh no, he, he sees, he sees what I'm doing. Pack your bags, demons, get out of here. He sees our strategy. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. John is pulling back the curtain to show us, here's how sin and the darkness of this world operates. And here's three categories you can learn to recognize in your own life to counter the enemy and to actually discern through, here's what's happening, here's how I should respond with scripture. Okay, so um, all these things are not from the Father, but from the world. That's the answer to the question. John, why can't a born-again believer, or why will not a born-again believer engage in these things in a lifelong way? Here's why. Because these things are from the world. But we have been born again of the Spirit to proceed, precede from the Father. So now we belong to and come from the Father. Our citizenship is in heaven. Because of that, there's... Um, uh, our, our essence, now that we're born again in Christ, we are incompatible with all the things that proceed from this world. So, we'll break it down, okay? John just gave you three specific categories of sin. We're going to break these each down in depth, and then I have to. I know you guys are like, stay in First John, man. Bro, I have to. Like, this is just where the Holy Spirit is leading me. James 1.14 says, each person is tempted... For those of you that blame the devil for every temptation, for those of you that blame the world and your and your you know childhood trauma, which might have a role in it, or for those of you that blame your parents for not raising you right, just read verse 14. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed, sounds like a hunter, by his own desire. Who's hunting you? Your own desire. Who's luring you and enticing you? Your own desire. Can the enemy and the kingdom of darkness and the world amplify those desires? Sure. But they're already present. The devil doesn't have to give you sinful desires. It already exists in your flesh. This flesh bag is, has a draw to the things that are sinful by default. So the world doesn't have to tell me to want sin. The devil doesn't have to tell me want sin. All the world and the devil does is play on and capitalize on the desires that already exist in my flesh. So number one, there are desires of the flesh that exist in our bodies. 
Ephesians 2.3 will also speak to these fleshly desires, which uh, I think a good way to sum up the desires of the flesh are just those things that you crave in your body. Specifically, I think desire for sexual pleasure is at the top of the list. Ephesians 2.3 says, look, we used to live among the sons of disobedience, but now we're believers. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Y'all talk about pursuing your passion. And the culture around us and every advertisement we see on TV is all about you going after your passion and don't let anything stop you. Apparently, there's a bad kind of passion. Apparently, there's a sinful kind of passion that originates in my fleshly body that I should not pay attention to and I should not pursue. I should tame that. I should kill it. I should put that fire out before it gets too big. And I should trust God to lead me into freedom and victory over it. I should not entertain certain passions that, uh, that are you know coming from my flesh. So the world's telling you every passion you have is good. Follow your heart. Disney, you're garbage, right? No, there are passions in my flesh that are bad. And Paul is saying we used to live in those, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So our body has desires. Your flesh has passions. James tells us in our body itself, we have sinful desires. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision, right? Don't encourage what is of the flesh. Don't make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Don't cultivate a life where sin is encouraged and easier to do. Cultivate a life and live a kind of life where sin becomes harder instead of easier. Distance yourself from sin. Make as many steps as you need to take away from sin and don't just stand right behind the line seeing how, get, how close you can get to the line. Well, how close can I get to sin without really actually giving in and disobeying God? Don't play with fire, man. Don't play with that line. Don't play with that line. Make no provision for the flesh. So, where am I? First shot. That's the desires of the flesh. It's what feels good to my body. Sexual pleasure, gluttony. Um, can't think off the top of my head. Those are the two that come to mind. But it's we're, we're going to break this down and we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, You're going to see all three of these categories play out right in front of you in the story of Adam and Eve. Okay, You're going to see all these different categories of sin play out right in front of us in Genesis 3. You're also going to see these three categories play out when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. All three are present. So what's the desires of the eyes? We know the desires of the flesh are what feels good to my body. The desires of the eyes are what looks good to the eyes. Think of lust. Think of lots of money. Think of an opportunity you see to, you know, that will really propel you in life and get you the money you need. And, and it's what you see that looks good. Okay? So desires of the flesh are what, is what will feel good to satisfy the cravings of my body. The desires of the eyes is what, dang, that looks good. I want that. I want that. The pride of life is what seems good. Seems good to me. In other words... It's something I want in my pride that will allow me to not need God anymore. 
And you're going, why do you come to that conclusion? Because Eve will qualify the forbidden fruit according to these exact three same categories. The devil ain't using some new strategy with believers. Oh, they're born again. I'm going to change my strategy. He's always been about deception. He's always been about playing on our sinful desires and leading us into sin so that we destroy ourselves and end up in death. He's always been about making sin seem not as big of a deal as it really is, right? And he plays on what feels good to you, what looks good, and what seems good to your heart. So we have the body, what feels good. We have the eyes, what looks good. And then we have our own deceitful heart, which what seems good, okay? Uh, I've heard people break these three categories down as sex, money, and power. Sexual pleasure, what, what's, what feels good to me. Money, what looks good. If I have more of that, if I have more of that, I can have more of this. It's possessions, it's materials, it's stuff. Pride of life is what seems good, okay? Power. Man, if I just had more power, I wouldn't need God as much, you know? It's what eliminates your need for God in your own mind. Think of those things you're pursuing in your life right now that you're inadvertently trying to replace God with. And you're going, if I just had more money, if I just had this job, if I just had that house, if I just was healthy and enough, if I just worked out enough and was strong enough to fill in the blank, I wouldn't need to lean on God as much. I wouldn't need him as much. So let me take you to Genesis 3. Starting in verse 6, okay? Let's just fast forward. God creates the whole world. It's beautiful. He's structuring, ordering. Now we have Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent creeps up, talks to Eve. And then Eve looks at the forbidden fruit. God told Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is that symbolic? Is it metaphorical? Is it literal? Is that actually what happened in all reality? Like it's a literal thing. I think we're just supposed to see that Eve fell for the deception of this serpent. That's all I'm going to leave it at, okay? Because I don't have the answers to those other questions. When the woman saw, okay, I'm going to highlight these things for you. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, what does that sound like? That sounds like what feels good to my body. In other words, Eve looks at the forbidden fruit and goes, that would be good to eat. That would feel good. Okay. And when she saw it was a delight to the eyes. Ding, 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 ding. There's what looks good to the eyes. She goes, that looks good to me. Okay. She was deciding that that looked good even though God said it was not good. She, in other words, her, her perception was distorted. No longer was she seeing the forbidden fruit through the lens of God's command. Now she's looking at the forbidden fruit through the lens of the enemy's deception. He's influenced Eve to see... Um, he's influenced Eve to see the fruit in a different light. That's why you have the sin you see. And when she saw the tree was to be desired to make one wise, which this is pretty much what the serpent said. Hey, when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be wise and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when it says she saw the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what she's really saying and what the author wants you to see 
is that she sees the fruit as something that will allow her to be her own God. Now she can know good and evil like God and define good and evil on her own terms and not need to lean on God to tell her what's good and evil. In other words, here comes the pride of life. Right here, good for food, what feels good, lust of the flesh. Delight to the eyes, what looks good, right? Lust of the eyes. Desire to make one wise, pride of life, what seems good. Okay? So the point is, there are three primary categories from the very beginning that the enemy has capitalized on. What seems good to you? I know this is going to get repetitive. Repetition sinks things in, though. What looks good, what seems good, and what um, what feels good to the body. Okay? The problem is, after Eve does take from the fruit, what's sad is she doesn't know good and evil like God. Because remember, the serpent says, look, God knows something you don't, Eve. He's keeping something from you. He's holding out. He's not giving you his best. He knows that when you eat the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. How? You'll know good and evil like God. Hmm. He's like, you're telling me I could... Well, hold on. God's holding out on us? And if I eat the fruit, like, I'll have what he's holding out on us? I can get it? By myself? If I reach out... And I can, do, I can know good and evil like him. The problem is she didn't know good and evil like God. She knew good and evil in a different way. She knew it in an experiential way. She knew good and evil through personal participation in it. God does not. God gives you categories for good and evil. Eve decided, I want to decide what is good and evil on my own terms. I want to define what is good and evil for myself. I don't want to need God in the equation to tell me what's good and evil. And this is one of the attack points for a lot of atheists that are living their best life, that have, have no God to look to and no God to restrict them. And they say, you guys just restrict yourself. You have to listen to a God to tell you what's right and wrong. Like, I know right and wrong without God. Hello, I can be morally good without God. The, I could go down a whole rabbit hole that I'm going to choose not to because I'm exercising self-control. The point is, Eve wanted to be her own God. Okay? She wanted the wisdom that God had, that apparently the serpent said he was holding out. She didn't want God in the equation, and she wanted to live outside of God's authority and be her own God. Independent. She wanted autonomy. And it's exactly what we see. First John tells us, don't love those things. Don't pursue those things. Each of those things is a category for sin. And the serpent wants to go after and offer people what feels good. And the world wants to tell you what looks good. They, in other words, the world and the enemy wants to influence your perception of what is good. Culture wants to tell you what you should be going after as good. Culture wants to tell you what you should do to feel good and what you should want. And they play on, the enemy plays on the already present sinful desires and amplifies those so that sin is encouraged by the world. And it's dumbed down and it's minimized and then good is evil and evil is good now. That's what the enemy wants to do. Our heart is inclined, our flesh at least as believers, is inclined to do evil. And the devil wants you to follow those fleshly desires without the guidance of God. 
Here's what I want you to see, though. Before the before Eve ever saw the forbidden fruit in this way, there was a conversation that she had with the serpent. And what I need you to understand is before you and I ever give into sin, we've decided to look at sin through a distorted lens. And we say, this will make me feel good. I know I've done this for years and it never ends well, but in this moment, I think this is going to feel good and it's going to look good. And if I just do it this one time, maybe there'll be a, a different kind of satisfaction. Maybe there won't be shame associated with it. But before you and I ever see sin through a distorted lens, okay, there's a conversation that we entertain that we need to cut off entirely. In other words, before Eve ever sees the fruit differently than what God had always told her it was, she had a conversation with the enemy, the serpent. And here's how the enemy will deceive you through deceptive conversation that often you and I don't even know is taking place. So let me take you a few verses prior. The serpent creeps up. The serpent is called crafty. Okay. And he says to the woman, and he's going to do three things here. He's going to doubt God's word. He's going to distort God's word. And then he's going to deny God's word. He said to the woman, hey, did God actually say? This is key. Did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Well, hold on, Sparky. God didn't say you can't eat from any tree in the garden. So Satan twisted um, God's word already. But here, before he does that, he doubts. He wants Eve to doubt the goodness of God. He wants Eve to doubt that God is really for her good. Okay. And so before Eve ever give, even thinks about eating from the tree, she has decided, because the serpent attacks the truth first, she's decided to doubt the character and the goodness of God and the word of God. And this is why the enemy is going to attack truth. Because whether or not we give in to sin, that depends on what you believe about God and his word in that moment. Because we live out what we believe. Everyone's living out their belief system about God. And, and ultimately, your life is determined by your view of God. So understand that Eve only saw the forbidden fruit differently through a distorted lens. Uh, and, and her perception was corrupted because she entertained a conversation with the serpent who caused her to doubt the goodness and the word of God. She chose, she chose to see God through and from the perspective of the serpent. In other words... She allowed this conversation to um, cause her um, or to uh, allow the serpent to impress his perspective of God onto her. So now she's not going to see God through the lens of what she knows about him. She's going to see God from the serpent's perspective because she entertained this conversation too long. So the serpent doubts that God is good. How do we know that? Well, because he pretty much says, hey, God is holding out on you. God knows when you eat this fruit, you know, you'll become like him. He doesn't want that. You know, he doesn't really want what's best for you. Otherwise, he'd give this to you. So God's really like, you know, restricting you. 
uh, and not letting you live out your full potential. And so, did God actually say? You're supposed to hear that in a way where um, the serpent is almost mocking or demeaning the command of God, making light of it. Did God really actually say, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Then he builds on that and he distorts God's word. And guess what? God never said you can't eat from any tree of the garden. He told you you can't eat from that one, just one, just, just one, that's it. Just hundreds, thousands of other trees you can eat from. The problem is, the woman said to the serpent, right here, the woman said, you know what the woman should have done? Eve should have walked away. Eve should have walked away, not even entertained that, that conversation with someone who's doubting the word of God and then distorting it right off the bat. Don't entertain it. Cut the conversation off. Move on. But she falls for the trap. And then she actually misrepresents what God actually says. How do we know that? The woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. That is correct, Eve. We're off to a good start. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. That is also correct, Eve. Good job. Two for two, buddy. Neither shall you touch it. Oh, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's wrong. God did not say you can't touch it. Eve added another command to what God said. Lest you die. God never said she couldn't touch it. Doesn't mean she shouldn't have. That's just not what God said. She added another layer to the command of God to make it more of a burden than it actually was. In other words, she has added something that makes the, the command of God seem burdensome. Now God is like a killjoy who's capping her potential and holding out on her. Because look, he wouldn't even let us touch the trees. Well, hold on, Eve. You never said that. And 1 John 5, 3 says the commands of God are not burdensome. But when you add legalistically, when you add a command of God, or you, you let's just say like what Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, you guys take your tradition and your man-made commandments and you make those God's commands, even though they're not. And you actually neglect what God actually says in the process. Of course, I'm, you know, um, summarizing what he said. But the point is, okay, that there is a way in which we as human beings, okay, we as human beings can add something, an unnecessary command that God never gave which actually we think is good, but it ends up legalistically distorting our view of God mm -hmm, and actually justifies sin a little more. As a kid, like we've all been there, as a kid, sometimes we think it's reasonable to, to disobey our parents. Like my, my son the other day, man, I forget what I told him to do. I was like, hey, um, what was it? I forget. I said, I said don't open the garage. Don't open the garage. And then he opened it. And I go, why did you open that? And he goes, well, because I really wanted to. And I said, but I said not to do that. He genuinely thought it was reasonable for him to not listen to me because he really wanted to do it. Possibly in my son's mind, he was justifying his disobedience, right? 
by making me seem unreasonable in his own mind. In other words, as kids, when we don't listen to our parents, uh, sometimes we try and justify our own disobedience by, in our own mind, we try and mis we misrepresent them and make them seem more of a killjoy than they actually are. And that's exactly, I think, what Eve is doing here. Um, nowhere does scripture say that Adam gave Eve this command, for those that are saying he did. What the text does say is that she said, neither shall you touch it. So scripture doesn't say Adam told Eve to do this or that God in some uh, private conversation. We have the explicit command of God in both Genesis 2 and or 1 and 2 to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's pretty clear. Nothing about touching it. The point is, and I don't want to stay here too long. The point is when you... Um, when you turn a preference into a command of God, which is what a lot of people do, you inadvertently give people the ammunition to justify their disobedience because now you've made God out to be more unreasonable than he actually is. Does that make sense? And, and that's why people can justify sin because God's just unreasonable. He just doesn't understand me. And I'm made this way. And I can't just always resist sin. And it's like, well, what you're defining as sin in, in that statement, you know, what you just talked about, like, um, you know, God doesn't say you can't play video games. Let's go there. Let's go there. Yeah? Let's go there. God doesn't say you can't play video games. There's wisdom in exercising self-control. There's wisdom in discerning through what you allow your eyes to see and what you allow your ears to hear, right? There's wisdom and discernment in, in, in deciding, I want to engage in something, okay? I want to engage in something that strengthens my faith and honors God. There's wisdom in that. So can there be certain video games that can become sinful for me to play? Sure. Does that now make the concept of video games itself, however you make sense of that, does that make me playing Tetris on my phone now a sin? No. Now, for some people, their conscience is violated. When they do, that's their personal conscience, though. That's not an explicit universal command in God's word for all of God's people to have nothing to do with any video games. So do you see how we can take a preference or our own personal conscience and conviction and turn that into a legalistic universal command for all of God's people. So I'm just saying Eve seems to be doing that here, adding an unnecessary layer, which in her mind now justifies her decision to disobey. Cause look how unreasonable God is. He's holding out. Come on, God, you should know that you can give us what, what we need. Give it to us. Don't hold out. Don't cap us. But then the serpent outright denies God's word. After doubting and distorting it, he outright denies it. And you wonder why Eve fell for the trap. If the serpent creeped up and outright denied the word of God, because look, he says, the serpent said, you won't die. No, God said you will. And that's what the serpent is still doing nowadays. He's minimizing sin. He's actually... Um, uh, glamorizing sin 
to make it this beautiful thing you should be engaging in. And look how awesome it is to follow your heart and do whatever you feel like doing and, and be who you want to be. Don't let anyone cap you. The enemy is still minimizing sin. And he's still denying the word of God by saying, you won't die. There's no afterlife. There's no God you have to answer to. There's no eternal separation as a result of sin. There is. So you wonder how Eve fell for this blatant denial of God's word. Well, it's the previous two statements that for us are really quick, right? It just happens so fast. But within each of those statements, did God actually say, you know, you can't eat from any other tree? Within each of those statements, and then, okay, and then from Eve's perspective, saying, yeah, we can't even touch it. You, you see the progression. You see the progression. Eve first misrepresents God. Then, after hearing the denial of God's word outright, she just disobeys. So look at how the serpent is crafty. And this is what I want to stay on. The serpent wants you to see God the way he does. Satan wants you to see God through his perspective, from his perspective. So Eve knew who God was. She's walked in the garden with her husband and her creator. She has a, a, a right view of God. But, okay, now she's allowing the enemy to influence how she sees God so that her own perception of God in this moment is different than who God actually is. And this is what we do in that microsecond of choosing to sin, is we either misrepresent God and make him to be something he's not, we either add an extra unnecessary command that he never gave, and we make it this killjoy, burdensome thing where now we're justified to sin, or, okay, um, we allow our conversation with sin mentally, it happens so fast, we allow that conversation with sin to influence our perception of God so that now I'm not sinning against uh, an, uh, like a correct view of God. The view of God I have in mind that I'm sinning against is not true to who God really is. In Eve's mind, she's sinning against God who is a killjoy, who is burdensome, who's holding out on her, who doesn't want what's best for her. And underlying all of that, the assumption is that, they, that he doesn't love her. And the, the serpent has seemingly deceived her into believing that. And now her view of God that she's choosing to rebel against isn't actually true to, the, to who God really is. Does that make sense? And then she gives in. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The reason I brought up this whole strategy, okay, is to show you that there are three primary categories of sin. Three. The lust of the flesh, what feels good. The lust of the eyes, what looks good. And the pride of life, what seems good to my own heart. What seems good to me without God that eliminates him from the equation and allows me to define good and evil on my own terms. There's your pride of life. Desires to make one wise. Okay, But before Eve ever qualifies and sees the forbidden fruit the way she does, she entertains a conversation she shouldn't have. She allows the enemy to come in. The serpent doubts God's word, which plants seeds of doubt. The enemy distorts God's word, misrepresents God, and then Eve answers with a misrepresentation of God's command. 
And then the serpent denies God's word outright, which pushes Eve over the edge into disobedience. And there we have the fall. There's the process by which it happens. Okay. And you go, how do we get here? First John gives us these three categories. And he tells us, don't love these things. Don't love the world system opposed to God. Don't. And then we'll get to this. The world is passing away. But I can't just leave you high and dry and say, there's the enemy's strategy. He comes in to doubt God's word. He comes in to distort it, outright deny it in your mind. He comes in to sow seeds of, of doubt and rebellion. And then you qualify sin in such a way where, ooh, this looks good or this feels good or this seems good. And you justify that sin by misrepresenting God in your mind. I don't just want to give you a strategy. I, I want to give you like a solution and a way to fight back. Um, or I don't just want to give you the enemy strategy. Okay, so Jesus, weirdly enough, is going to undergo those same exact three categories of temptation. The difference between Jesus and Adam and Eve is that he will stand strong. He's perfect. He resists perfectly at his weakest point. He's hungry because he's fasted for 40 days. I fast for like 12 hours. And I get hangry. I reach my limits, bro. 40 days? You're talking like a month and 10 days? That's insane. But you're supposed to think Moses going up on the mountain too. 40 days of testing. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Watch Jesus destroy the enemy. All three categories of sin are presented to Jesus. Watch him obliterate the devil. He goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In other words, he goes into the wilderness to do war. He goes to war with the enemy in the flesh. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's the understatement of the century, bro. He was hungry. I'm hungry if I don't eat for a couple hours. Jesus wasn't hungry. He's probably starving. And the tempter came and said, Hey, if you're the son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Uh-oh. Hmm. Let's do a little uh, opportunity for you guys to respond. Right here, this temptation, what category does it fit under? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life? What looks good, what seems good, or what feels good? The devil says, hey, you're hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. It's no big deal. You have power, right? You're out here super hungry. Sure God wants you to fill your tummy. Amazing grace says lust of the flesh. That's it. What feels good. So here we see it again. These stones become loaves of bread. What feels good. Here's how Jesus answers. It is written. It is written. <laughs> Bingo. Here is the way Eve should have responded. There are three potential ways Eve could have responded in the garden. Number one, she hears that God is potentially holding something out on her. She then desires for that thing. Instead of seizing it for herself, she could have ran back to God and said, Hey, the serpent told me. And she could have allowed God to correct that misunderstanding and that deception he presented. She could have ran to God to have that need filled. That's the key here. 
is you and I have genuine, legitimate, physical, fleshly cravings and needs that we're wired with. Who do you run to to satisfy those things? Eve could have said, hey, I hear you have this thing. I'm coming to you asking if you'd give it to me because the serpent said yeah, you're kind of holding out on us. So will you give it? Who knows? Would God have said yes? Would God have said, yeah, over time? Uh, we don't know because it didn't happen like that. Eve didn't do that. Eve could have also answered, uh, you know, serpent, you're misrepresenting God. This is actually what God truly said. You can't eat from any, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but we can eat from any other tree. And she could have just stopped at that. The third opportunity or the third, you know, option she could have taken. And there will be questions at the end. Yes. So stick around. Don't leave. <laughs> she could have also just walked away, man. Don't even entertain conversation with the enemy. How many problems would that have prevented in our own life? How many things could we have been spared from if we just cut off that conversation with the enemy in our head? If we just cut off that mental conversation with the flesh that we have, which is like, dang, this is going to feel good. Dang, she looks good. Dang, this is going to like really satisfy what I've been longing for. And dang, I could like really get what I want. Instead of entertaining that, you run to God, you run to prayer and you quote the scriptures. Jesus doesn't even entertain what, what the enemy is saying. Look what he says. Just off, just off the cuff, man. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus answers with scripture. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's the temptation Satan brings to, to Jesus. Hey, if you jump off this temple where everyone is, and all the religious leaders see you, and then the angels catch you and you don't die, you would convince them that you're really the son of God. You could really show and convince all these people that you're the son of God. Just jump off the temple, man. If I were to ask you, what category does that fit under? What looks good or what seems good? Pride of life or lust of the eyes? Which one? Let me know in the chat. Satan does use scripture and distort it. And what's funny is he's doing um, what he did in the garden. Right here, he distorts scripture. Because he quotes the scripture word for word, but he twists the meaning and has wrong conclusions. And twists the interpretation. Sadly, that's a lot of pastors who are like saying... Look how much we preach the word of God. And bro, you're reading it, but you're twisting the meaning so that when you present it to people, yes, you're reading the actual scripture, but you're telling them it's saying something it's not. Pride of life. Bingo. Good job, guys. So if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. You'll convince everyone. In other words, hey, you don't have to trust in God to reveal your divinity and your and your messiahship into the world by the resurrection. You can just shortcut the whole death and resurrection thing. Whether or not Satan knew that was coming, doesn't seem like he did. But either way, whatever he thinks God has in mind for Jesus, he's saying you can just bypass the whole thing. Right now, make a scene. They'll all believe. And God will catch you. Look at the scriptures. And Jesus goes, actually, you just twisted that scripture 
It's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here's how I know. Here's how I know what you said was a wrong interpretation because it violates another passage that is very clear. And you're telling me to test God when Deuteronomy also says, do not put God to the test. And Jesus also might be claiming divinity in that statement subtly by saying, don't put me to the test, bro. Which would be really cool, right? Okay. So, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. So, we got lust of the flesh. We got pride of life. Which one is this one? The devil shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In a vision, does he actually take him, teleport him up to the sky and show him from, a, from an aerial view? I don't know. Either way, he's showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the world that he could hand to Jesus right now. And he says, I'll give these to you if you just fall down and worship me. That's always what Satan's after. In the garden, that's what he was after. He wanted Adam and Eve to bow down to him instead of God. He wanted Adam and Eve. And you go, if they didn't bow down by obeying the serpent and believing his word and surrendering to him, they were bowing down to him and not God. Who you obey is who you bow down to. It's who your allegiance is to. So this one is lust of the eyes. Because Satan goes, look, look at all this stuff I'll give you. Doesn't that look good? All the kingdoms, man. I'll give it to you right now. Whatever God's gonna, the Father's going to do with you, you don't have to do it, man. I'll just give you the kingdoms. I don't know if Satan legally has grounds to hand the kingdoms over to Jesus. I don't think he does. I also don't know if he would have. You know, Jesus does call him the ruler of this world, but to what degree is he in charge? This is what Jesus said. Be gone, Satan. And this is, frankly... Jesus could have started with this, but he let it play out for our wisdom. He let this whole scenario go on as long as it did to model for us something and to teach us how to battle temptation and the flesh and the world and the enemy every single day. He could have initially said, be gone, Satan, get out of my face. I'm done with you. Like, I'm not even going to play around with you today, bro. I'm hungry. Get out. But he waited. Now, game over. I'm done playing around. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. Get out of here. That's frankly what you and I should do the very microsecond we recognize temptation. The problem is, half the battle in spiritual warfare is recognizing that you're even under temptation. I think that's why a lot of people give in to sin. Because they only recognize it's real temptation after the fact. And they're like, I can't believe I didn't even see that I was under sin right there. Like I was actually lusting right there. I was actually coveting. I, even, I fell into pride. I fell into going after something God didn't call me to. And I, and I wanted it without him so I could not lean on him as much. And I fell into that. If you and I can learn to, to... The mental battle is so huge. That's where the battle is. That's where sin attacks. That's where temptation comes. It starts in the mind. And then Paul wants to teach you... Take every thought captive. You can't, you won't take a thought captive until you recognize it's a foreign enemy first. So first, I need to recognize this thought, this idea, this desire, this ambition is from my flesh and the devil and it's not what I want. Then I can deal with it. But if you don't recognize it, you won't deal with it. 
So being discerning and being thoughtful and critically thinking through thoughts and, and really evaluating where is this thought coming from? What is this going to produce in me? Where is this leading me if I give into it? You know, there is a, there, I, I tell people this, it's crazy. In the mind's eye, you can actually, like, however you qualify this, you can see a thought coming at a distance and know exactly where that thought intends to take you before it ever reaches that, that part of your mind that says, do it, give in, have me. Before it ever reaches you, you can recognize where it's taking you at a distance. And Jesus answers temptation, answers the devil, fights with scripture. He fights with scripture. And you and I go, duh. Yeah, but how often do we let temptation play out and we don't even quote scripture like Jesus? How often do we just let the conversation with the flesh go on and on and on? We do nothing about it and we're 10 minutes in and we're going, oh, I just got to give into this. I'm really craving sin. And then we jump on it. And all the while, throughout those 10 minutes of temptation, we didn't pray. We didn't quote scripture. We didn't even meditate on the scriptures that combat that temptation and that sin. We just sat there and took it. We just sat there and took the pounding in the corner until we finally were done and said, okay, we give in. So not only should you recognize temptation and pray that God would not lead you into temptation, not that he doesn't, but he can allow you to avoid unnecessary temptation. He can give you wisdom to recognize temptation. He can give you discernment to actually avoid things he doesn't want you to go into. And so if we learn to recognize it, then in the minute I recognize I'm under temptation, I can actually meditate on the scriptures that push against that sin and that temptation. The problem is we don't take this seriously, man. He actually quotes out loud the scripture. Like Satan doesn't just come and tempt him and he's like, I'm meditating on the scriptures. Hold on, Satan. Why are you still here? He quotes it out loud. He lets the scripture go to work. He is the word of God incarnate for sure. But as a human being, he's modeling for us what it looks like to wield the sword of the spirit and to fight temptation. And I'd say like this, I know people would disagree with me. I frankly, I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> like you're not really fighting back until you're quoting scripture. And you can pray all you want. Rescue me. God, help me. He's given you the tool. He's given you his spirit. He's given you knowledge. He's given you understanding of his word so that you can let the word of God guide your decisions instead of only being focused on satisfying that craving and giving into that sin. And, and we get so tunnel visioned on our sin, we forget that there's scripture that tells us not to do that. So if you can learn how to quote the scripture, I don't care how crazy you look in public. If you're lusting after a woman on the bus, I don't care, how, whisper it under your breath. If you're coveting what that girl has and you're really wanting the, the body that guy has and, and you're going, ah, I just got to get in the gym more. I just really want to learn to quote scripture out loud. And you go, I don't know if that's the principle. Okay, fine. Like, good luck. Good luck. I'm just trying to give you the actual practical instruction that I see Jesus modeling for us, which is don't just read the scripture. Don't just know the scripture, wield it like a sword, use it, stand on it, quote it. Otherwise, good luck. Right? Good luck. 
Notice the other thing, okay? And then we'll jump back to 1 John, because we've been out of 1 John too long. Every time the enemy tempts him, he says, if you're the son of God. If you're the son of God. Oh, there's an if conditional here. But the point is, this comes right after Jesus' baptism. Think about it. What did the Father declare when the heavens tore open and the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism? What did the Father declare about his Son? He said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Is it a coincidence that the next thing Jesus does is get attacked by the devil who says, are you really the son of God? Like if you are, do this to prove yourself. If you are, convince me. If you are, then you'll do what I'm telling you to do to really show me that you're the son of God. Do you understand how powerful insecurity can be in a bad way? Insecurity can sway your decisions. Insecurities can cause you to see life through a disrupted lens. Insecurity can cause us to do the dumbest things. Insecurity is actually a breeding ground for temptation. And I know like, when I read this text, and I, and I notice how the devil twice says, hey, he opens the temptation with, if you're the son of God. In other words, convince me. Prove it. Which is what all the religious leaders who didn't believe wanted Jesus to do. They said, prove it. Do the signs. Do what we want. Convince us you're the son of God. All the while, they're ignoring all the other signs he's giving. But the point is, Jesus didn't need to convince the devil of anything. He didn't need validation for the devil. He didn't need to prove he's the son of God to either the Jews by jumping off the temple or Satan by turning stones into bread. He didn't need to. He had the father's validation. And maybe this is a little more like therapy and counseling. And, but some of you, including myself, give in to sin a lot because of the insecurities we have and have struggled with for most of our lives. Whether it's I have to prove myself to someone so I got to compromise my values or whether it's I got to fit in with these people so they think I'm something I'm not. Or whether I got to put on this fake image of myself so that people think I'm more holy and spiritual than I am. And in the process, I let self-righteousness and pride seep in. right? Or whether it's, man, I don't know who I am. So I'm just going to keep dabbling in sin until someone validates me enough to find a sense of identity. I think this is why the devil attacks our identity the most. I think that's why. Is because he knows if he can leave you not knowing who you really are in Christ, you're more vulnerable to sin. And you're more willing to compromise your values. And you're more willing to give in to things that you otherwise would have never considered, but your self-image is on the line now. And now people are going to see me a certain way if I don't perform. And I gotta even compromise my religious values. When you know who you are, you don't need anyone else's validation, which means you can just enjoy the Father's love and do what He says. So we find ourselves back in First John, verse two, verse seven, or chapter two, verse seventeen. Okay, and we tackled all that is from the world that we shouldn't love. We tackled the enemy's strategy. Okay, now 
Look at what he says. After saying, look, the desires of the flesh, what feels good, the desires of the eyes, what looks good, the pride of life, what seems good. All these things are from the world. Now look at the contrast he makes in verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, the fleshly desires and cravings, all that stuff. This world system is fading. And if you don't live like that, then you'll attach yourself to something that's inevitably going to be taken from you. And you'll live for something that's going to fade and won't follow you into the kingdom. Or, like Jesus says, you'll give up your soul in the process of pursuing the world. This is why Jesus says, look, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Are there people who are giving up eternity in the name of loving this world now? Yes. Are there people who are trading in their soul to gain this world now for a temporary season? Yes. And John wants you to know this world is passing away. Not just the form of this world, not just the actual creation as it is in this current condition, but the system that's opposed to God is not going to stay in power forever. Just like Daniel's vision, Jesus is going to establish and bring in fullness his eternal kingdom, which will crush every op opposing kingdom in its path. And so the world is passing away along with its desires. Look at the contrast though. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So on one hand, something is fading. On the other hand, something stays forever. Which one will you attach yourself to? Will you attach yourself to the world that's fading away and going to be replaced with God's new creation? Or are you attaching yourself to God as your father, namely Jesus as your savior, and he'll never change and he'll never forsake you. And he's a solid rock and you can build your eternity on him. Who are you attaching yourself to? Jesus or the world? You have to ask yourself that daily. It's a daily decision. To say, who am I going after? Who am I pursuing? Who am I loving? Who am I allowing to influence my decisions and ultimately my entire life? Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verse 35. It says, heaven and earth will pass away. Like the world in its current condition is literally fading. It's degenerating. It's going towards a decline the actual creation itself. But he says, my words will not pass away. Let me say it like this. There's a connection between the father, between his word and between his people, his children. Okay. I feel the need to model this with three. I'm shooting from the hip here. So give me a second. Three markers. Okay. Let's just say this is the eternal God. This is the eternal God who never changes, never, never fades. He lasts forever. He's eternally the same today as he was yesterday and forevermore, right? So he's eternally consistent and eternally reliable. He doesn't fade. He is eternal. Here's his word, which Jesus says will never pass away. And because the word emanates from the father, namely Jesus, and because the gospel message is uh, is 
emanating from the Father and comes from Him as the source, the words of God carry the same nature of His eternality. Meaning, not only is God eternal, but so is His Word. So, you have the Father and the Word coming from the Father. How do I connect to God? Well, Jesus says He's the Word. John says He's the Word. Revelation says Jesus is the Word of God emanating from the Father, alongside the Father, from all eternity past. So Jesus is God alongside God as the eternal Word. But there is a gospel message that Jesus brings that brings salvation to those who believe. When you believe in the gospel, you're latching yourself on to the eternal word emanating from the Father so that now you have communion with the Father through the Son. This is the Son. This is you, children of God. And because you're born of, born of imperishable seed, that's what First Peter says, that our spirit being made alive and our new nature being born again, it's the product of the eternal word. And so we and our new nature, its origin is in the eternal word. That's why we're born of imperishable seed, okay? And the seed is the gospel that we believe and receive. And so by believing in that eternal gospel message, we're reformatted and recreated to be latched on to the Father through the eternal word being the Son. And so that's why Jesus will say, look, heaven and earth pass away, but my words will not. And that's why John is going to bring in the concept of having the anointing and the knowledge, and the seed of God abiding in us. And then Peter says, we're born of imperishable seed. That's why we don't pass away. The children of God don't fade with this world because the seed of the gospel has been planted in their heart to bear the fruit of a new eternal uh, self and new created nature and a new spirit that's alive in Christ and now when God comes to establish his eternal kingdom and new creation comes, we are reformatted to actually uh, be consistent with new creation. And so as the world system fades, the people of God don't. Because we have a fundamentally different nature. I have a, a heavenly nature. I actually, by the grace of God, I have eternal life as the fruit of the gospel I received. Because I've been connected to the Son who connects me to the Father so that I, by the grace of God, I'm reformatted, born again, spiritually made alive so that I'm compatible with new creation. And that's why Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians, you and I are new creation in Christ. We're the first of new creation in our spirits, not our actual physical bodies, but our spirits are the first of new creation of course, following the footsteps of Jesus. That's why John is going to say those who attach themselves to this world, right, are going to fade with the world. Because you're not compatible with or formatted to uh, live in the new creation that God brings. And that's why the will of God here is key. It's whoever does the will of God. It's whoever is a child of God. And you might be tempted to think that this says, hey, 
Whoever perfectly follows God's laws and never sins, they will abide forever with God in the new creation. That's not what it says. John 6.56 tells us what the overall general will of God is. And you can sum up the law and the prophets as love God and love neighbor. John's already done that in his letter. And we've talked about that the last episode. Okay, but first, before love for God and love for people, there's, a, there's, a, there's another step that precedes that. It's called faith. Here's what Jesus says is the work or the will of God that we're called to do. John 6, 28. The Jews say, what do we have to do to do the works of God? Jesus goes, here's what God wants you to do, or here's the work of God that you can do. Believe in him whom he has sent. What does he say there? He says, believe in the son. That's the work of God. That's how you fulfill the law through Christ, because he fulfilled it for us and he extends his perfection to us. So that Romans 8, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, because Jesus grants you his perfection and he makes you righteous. And he says, I fulfilled the law for you. So just believe in me and you can fulfill the law and I'll extend to you my righteousness. So that's why the work of God is to believe. Then from that faith, we go in love, God and people. Uh, Let me take you to verse 56. Talking about those who abide or remain forever. Whoever feeds on my flesh, Jesus says, and drinks my blood. This is where the Catholics get the concept of uh, transubstantiation or however it goes. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. All consistently throughout John 6. This is a metaphor. Feeding on the flesh of Jesus can be explained as coming to him in faith. Believing on him. Drinking his blood. Because he says, the, the, the food that I give, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So how do you physically eat the spiritual life Jesus has made available? It's not a physical action. It's believing. That's what it means to eat, feed on the flesh of Jesus, drink his blood. It's a metaphor for believing. He's explaining himself to be the bread of life, the manna that truly comes down from heaven from God. He's explaining himself to be the the real rock that satisfies and quenches the thirst of our soul. He's the living water we need to drink from. And if you believe, you abide in him. So I just want to show you that those who abide forever with God are those who first abide in him through believing. And they've essentially changed teams. I see your world. I'm out. My loyalty is with God now. Now we're going to get into the Antichrist, and it relates to the world. Everyone has a view of the Antichrist. Everyone has a concept of the Antichrist, which frankly might be partially biblical. Sometimes it's entirely biblical, depending on what you think. But let's let John explain the Antichrist. It's connected to the evil one. It's connected to this world system, which is under the influence of the evil one. Okay, And just as the world is passing away, along with the ruler of this world, who's cast out, so is the Antichrist, whatever that is. 
So ready for Antichrist? Children, it is the last hour. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Most believers, when they hear the word Antichrist, they think of Nikolai Carpathia. If you know what that is, it's from the Left Behind series. They think of that one main guy that's going to represent darkness and deceive the whole world. And is that a, a right concept? Sure. But that's not the only way to view Antichrist. Look at what he says. Antichrist is coming, but also many Antichrists have already come. Interesting. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now, to be honest, this whole last hour stuff and why he's reinforcing that, I don't really know. Because aren't we in the last hour? Were they in the last hour, but that last hour extends 2,000 years? Uh, historically, First John was written uh, between 80, 90, and 80, 100. Some people put it at 80, 85. Um, so this is after the fall of Jerusalem when Rome comes in and destroys the temple. Otherwise, I would think, oh, he's talking about when Jerusalem is going to be, you know, destroyed and, and burned to the ground with their temple by the Romans. But this can't be talking about that because this was historically written after. So I don't know what this whole last hour stuff is. But we do know that Antichrist is coming and Antichrist have come. So what I will say about that is it's in the word. You go, what's Antichrist? Someone who is anti-Jesus. They're against Christ and his gospel. They're against the true historical resurrected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they want to distort him to make him fit their worldview and their paradigm. And they want to distort the person of Jesus for the sake of their agenda. Doesn't it sound like the, the political agendas of our day and, and the people who are just twisting Jesus to like reinforce their sinfulness? Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. What does he mean by of us? Well, that means they didn't abide forever by doing the will of God. They weren't of God. They weren't belonging to or coming from God as their father. How do we know that? Because they left. So Antichrist is not just someone who is intentionally deceiving from a pulpit. Antichrist is not just false prophet or false teacher. Antichrist is anyone who is against Christ and his work and who he really is. The historical, actual, biblical Jesus. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. This is why when people ask me about my concept, my, my understanding of eternal security, they say, well, how do you make sense of people who had all the fruit? And follow Jesus and they die in unbelief and I go I could spend hours and I have spent hours talking about biblical eternal security and I've explained verses that make it seem like you can lose your salvation I've done that hard work but I will say it's because of this statement this is why I hold the view I have if they were of us they would have continued what is a true and sure mark of a believer? That they continue with the believing church in the faith. 
This doesn't mean they attend a local church. That, that's not what John is saying. And maybe physically people are leaving the local church expressions, right? Because that's all they have. But in our modern day and age, I mean, people can like be outside the, the physical church building and have the strongest faith in Jesus. Which I'm not justifying that lone wolf kind of me and God against the world mentality. But I am saying that my faith in Christ is not based on whether or not I attend a local church. And I'm not minimizing local church. I'm saying go to church. Be the hands and feet of Christ. Build your brothers and sisters up. Use your gifts. Okay. Do what you need to actually effectively help people become more like Christ. But look, he says they. Who's they? Antichrist. Not even just false teachers or false prophets. Anyone who is opposed to Christ. The fact that they left, abandoned the faith, did not come back. Abandoned the historical, biblical Jesus and the gospel message. The fact they left is proof they were never of us. And John can say that because the mark of a believer is lifelong, continual, enduring faith. However you make sense of how that happens and what does it look like to doubt and can I still like struggle? However you make sense of that. That's not the conversation today. The point is there are people who don't continue believing in the gospel and they leave and they die in unbelief. And you and I rack our brains trying to make sense of what happened logistically. That's not the problem. What we should be doing, instead of wasting our time talking through what possibly happened, we should go after them. We should go after them. And we should remind them of the truth and share the gospel and love them where they are and bring the truth into their life again. Stop trying to logistically figure out what happened. Did they know him? The point is they left. And John says, if they continued, that proves they're with us. If they left, that proves they were never of us. Not that they stopped being among us. It says they were not of us. So in John's mind, there's no category for someone who believes and then walks away never to believe again, right? And that person, uh, you know, was a true believer. That's not a category for John. And again, like, this is not a talk, the conversation on eternal security. I've done like five plus hours teaching not only my new view over the last few months with scripture and how I make sense of faith. You can go watch that and I'll link it in the description below after. That's not the conversation for now. So don't pitch to me. Oh, about the scripture. What about uh, when they struggle with sin? Point is, continuing means I continue believing. That's the element that saves. We want to hold people to a standard and say they should be going to church this much and they should be reading the Bible this much and they should only give in to sin this many times a week or they're not really a believer. It's just not reasonable. There's going to be good fruit, but fruit is going to vary with each person. They went out that it might become plain that not every one of them are of us. That's the point. That's the point. John's not giving you a theology on backsliding. John's not giving you a theology on, on, on what it looks like uh, to, to be eternally secure. What he is saying, though, is if you 
truly are of Christ in faith, a child of God, you will continue in faith. But then if you are not, you will not continue. There's no middle ground. It's black and white for me. Backsliding is going to be defined differently according to each person. So I'm not talking about backsliding, whatever that even means. I'm not talking about lukewarm Christians, whatever that even freaking means either. I'm talking about people who blatantly leave whatever confession they have and they're like, I'm done. And they die in unbelief. You have been anointed by the Holy One. Do you see the contrast there? He goes, yeah, they left, but you, you've been anointed by the Holy One. So let me say it to you like this. The people that left, John can confidently say, as subtly as he's saying it, he can confidently say they were not anointed by the Holy One. In other words, John is making a clear delineation right here. He's saying, what's the difference between you who continue in faith and those who don't? It's that you have the anointing from the Holy One. The Holy One being Jesus. And we're going to see that as you scroll down. Um, Where is it? As his anointing teaches you. And he's referring to Jesus here. The anointing that you receive from him. So whatever anointing he's talking about, and I'm just going to say it like this. In the Old Testament, you would anoint uh, a priest, a king, I think a prophet as well, uh, with oil, which would be representative of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, to what degree the Holy Spirit would fall upon those individuals to do the unique job God had for them? That's not the conversation. The point is, oil, anointing someone is representative of the Spirit of God falling on someone. Whether it's actually happening, or it's a metaphorical version of that. It's supposed to communicate that. So anointing, most consistently with Scripture, is going to be referring to the Holy Spirit of God. And as we move on, I'm going to show you why that is. Okay, But just know that the Spirit of God is what the anointing is right here. So when he says, you've been anointed or you've received the anointing, or his anointing teaches you, he's talking about the Spirit of God. So for John, what's the difference between a, those who leave whatever confession they had and never come back, and then those who continue believing into death? The difference is that one stayed, one didn't, but also one has the anointing from the Holy One, being Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and one does not. And he says, you all have knowledge. You have, all have knowledge. And he's not disconnecting the anointing from the knowledge. There is a way to know something, okay, in a way where it's purely informational. And it doesn't change your life. And then there's a way to know something, intellectually, informationally, and it touches your heart, goes deep down, you receive that, and then you apply that, and it changes your life. So there's two ways to know information. The anointing here being on the people he's talking to tells us that the knowledge, I think referring to the gospel, the knowledge they've received in faith is validated by the Holy Spirit anointing them. And the Holy One, for reference, see Mark 1.24, talks about uh, the... the um, 
demons, unclean spirits coming to Jesus and saying, what have you to do with us, uh, the Holy One of God? You all have knowledge. So what knowledge is he referring to that supposedly comes along with the anointing that those who leave the church do not possess? It seems to be saving knowledge, effectual saving knowledge, not intellectual informational knowledge that never results in transformation and salvation. I'm sure if you hit the streets today and walked up to 10 individuals, at least one of those people will tell you they know the gospel, they've heard it, and they don't want anything to do with it. And they might be able to even quote certain scriptures to reinforce the gospel they've heard, and they grew up in church, and they were born on the altar, but they don't believe. So it's not just knowing something that saves us. It's believing in what we come to know and receiving it in faith. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. Now, the reason he brings up the anointing in, up, in contrast with the Antichrist is because John is going to make that contrast progressively throughout the letter. He's going to contrast the spirit of Antichrist with the spirit of God. Okay? He says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth. So this knowledge here associated with the anointing, it is the truth that they know. Okay? It's not wrong knowledge, it's truth. But because you do know it. That's why John's writing to them. He's going, you guys know the truth. There's a way to know something intimately, right? Familiar, experiential way. And then there's a, know, a way to know something almost at a distance where it's like external information that I just I processed in my brain and then stopped at that, did nothing else. And he goes, look, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. He's made similar statements before. Like if you're of the world, you can't be of God at the same time, right? Or if you're of the spirit of Antichrist, then you're not of us. That's what he says. And now he's talking about the lies. Where'd the lies come from? These lies he's talking about are specifically attached to the spirit of Antichrist or the one who is Antichrist in the gospel. And they perpetuate lies and deception. Okay. So verse 22, who is the liar, but he who denies Jesus is the Christ. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah, the true anointed one, the only savior, the promised seed of the woman in Genesis 3, the, the, the promised son of David who would sit on the throne of David, right? The, the, the righteous one in da Daniel's vision who came on the clouds and approached the ancient of days. In other words, to deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation is to be of Antichrist. To deny that Jesus is the uniquely anointed Messiah is to be of Antichrist. So Antichrist has a lot to do with, and thinking like Antichrist has much to do with who you believe Jesus to be. If you scroll down a couple chapters to verse 3 of chapter 4, uh, John will say, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. That mode of thinking, that way of seeing the world, that way of, uh, of viewing God and Christ, there's a spirit there, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 
So the world here is connected to the spirit of Antichrist. Okay? You might almost use them interchangeably. So who is the liar? Well, the Antichrist that left the whatever confession, whatever faith they thought they have, and they deny Jesus is the Christ. And they either say there's other Christ, or he's not the true Messiah, and we're waiting for the true anointed one of God, and they don't look to him as who he not only verified himself to be, but who God you know, validated him to be. So to deny the, the Messiahship or the Christness of Jesus is to be of Antichrist. There's no way around it. That's why it's very important when you, you talk to people who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, like the most important question you can ask is, who do you say Jesus is? And part of being Messiah is to be the one emanating from the Father alongside the Father in eternity past, which is to be God in the flesh. And John's going to make that abundantly clear throughout this letter. So you have to get the divinity of Christ in... You have to get that. You have to get that. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Some spirit of Antichrist in the days of Jesus would think, no, we believe in the Father, we just deny the Son. And here's what John would say to that. Well, no one who denies the Son has the Father. You don't have one without the other. You have both, or you have none. You either have the Father through the Son, right? And you have the Son who leads you to the Father, or you have neither. So if you get the the, the person of Jesus wrong, inevitably, you end up having a wrong view of God. And that that trickles down into what you believe the gospel message is because the whole message of salvation is framed up by who God is. And if I get him wrong and if I get his nature and essence and character wrong, then the gospel gets distorted along with that. No one who denies the son has the father. And this denial here is not just like, Hey, um, you know, I just, under pressure, it said something about Jesus that I didn't really believe, and I shouldn't have said that. This is a life of denial with a confession. There are two kinds of denials. There's Peter, who denied to know Jesus with his mouth, right? And then there's Judas, who denied to know Jesus with his life. And he died in that worldly sorrow and unrepentant heart. He was just sorry. So... Denying Jesus is not just saying something wrong about him and proclaiming that he's not the Messiah, he's not the Christ, he's not God in the flesh, he's not the eternal word emanating from the Father. It's also attached to that confession, you're going to see a life that is consistent with that confession, right? And so what we need to understand is everyone is living out their view of God. Either he doesn't exist to you, or he's one among many, or he's this, 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 this God that can be molded into whatever I want him to be, or he's the historical biblical God of scripture. And if you get God wrong, all I have to do is watch your life for several years to see that and go, oh, okay, like that person's life is in denial of God and the gospel, which shows me that if I talked with them, they would probably tell me something wrong about the person of, of Jesus or the work of Jesus 
And this doesn't mean there's no room for God to fill in the gaps. And it's not like you can't be saved unless you get every single attribute and characteristic and, and dimension of his nature correct. This is who are you telling people is saving them? What are you telling them he's saving them from? Why is that an issue? Who is Jesus? What does he come to do? These are fundamental questions to the gospel. So at the core of this, to deny the son is to deny the gospel and salvation. Whoever confesses the son has the father also, right? To make a right confession about Jesus and his work, right? Is partial proof that someone might know Christ. It starts with a confession, but there's a lot of people who make a false confession where their life doesn't match up with what they say. So their life is proving they truly believe something uh, that is opposite of what they're telling you. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you go down to chapter three, verse 11, and we're almost done here. It says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. Love one another. Okay. So John has in mind the main message of the gospel, which is believe in the Son, and then from that go love God and people, which is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And it's not that you're trying to meet the law by your own love. It's that Christ has fulfilled the law for you so that your life can be lived um, in consistency with the law and the prophets, which is to love God and people. And he's saying, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Continue in that. There is a, I'll tell you what. There is a responsibility on the believer, on us. And we have a, a role to play in consciously choosing to abide and continue believing and continue pursuing and continue you know, obeying God and living in the light, we play a role in that. We, that takes conscious effort. We're not robots where God programs us to just do that without our thinking. It's that God equips us to do that by His Spirit. He ensures us that to some degree we will do that. But there is a conscious effort and responsibility on our end required to effectively, like John says, he says, um, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You might also say there are some in the congregation who maybe have yet to receive the gospel. Maybe among these different churches he's writing to, there are people who are, they're like the thorny soil in the parable of the sower. They're like the, the hard soil or they're like the, the rocky, shallow soil. But they're not good soil. They haven't allowed the word of God to, to take root in their heart and abide in them. They haven't received it in faith. For whatever reason, and maybe John is also warning people to um, what you've heard that you haven't committed to, let that abide in you. That also might be a secondary thing. And he was like, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So the reason I highlighted this in yellow, what you heard, what you heard, uh, the Son, the Son, the Father and the Son, the truth, the knowledge, the anointing, is because they're all connected. They're all connected. The anointing of God, His Holy Spirit, the knowledge of the gospel, um, the Father and the Son, uh, what we hear 
from the beginning, as passed down from Jesus, the gospel, all of these things relate. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. In other words, here's someone who knows Jesus. Here's someone who is in fellowship and friendship with God. Someone who has received the message of the gospel. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him and will come and make our home in him. God desires to make his people his dwelling place, his temple. God desires to fill his children with his very near presence and abide in them. Right? That's what John 14 and 15 is all about and 16. But the way God dwells in a person is through their reception in the, of the gospel, through our belief in Christ. That's the way God has ordained to fill a person by his spirit, his anointing of them, right? To make them a royal priesthood and his temple. Because what anointed the temple in all reality was the fact that God dwelt there, right? And so when we talk about um, abiding in the Son of the Father, that requires us to receive the message of the gospel. And look, this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. What does God promise his people? What does God promise you if you believe in Christ? Eternal life. That's not just living forever. A lot, a lot of people think eternal life is just living forever. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing his son. That's what John 17, 3 tells us. And so right here, God promises to his people who receive the gospel and let it abide in them that he will be in relationship with them through his son. And his son upholds the other end of the covenant that none of us ever could. He just allows that to benefit us. So eternal life is a promise to those who believe and have the word of God abiding in them. I think you're starting to see why I hold to the view of eternal security. Because it's promised. And the word of God abides in you, not just over the course of your life as if it potentially might not abide in you at some point. But the word of God at the very second of salvation, by his spirit, God actually fills you with his presence and his word so that you're a new creation. And that is a continual, guaranteed, secure thing all the way into eternal life. Verse 26 says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Remember the Antichrist. Remember, there is the spirit of Antichrist trying to deceive people. But the anointing that you received, which again, I believe is the Holy Spirit, that you received from him, from who? From God, from Christ. The anointing abides in you. The anointing abides in you. So, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you, that's a personal action. That's a personal action. That means a person, someone with personhood, is involved in teaching us about everything. That's also why I believe this is the Holy Spirit here. Because Jesus says this in John 16, 13. He says this in John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. In other words, He will teach you all the truth. 
And I don't believe that this specific statement is just for the apostles. I don't. Maybe there's a different way that happens for them. Maybe there's a, a dimension of that for them that, you know, isn't for us because we're not the pillars of the church like them, commissioned by Jesus personally. But when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into the truth. You know what that means? It means you don't stumble upon truth accidentally. Like, you know, it's, hey, truth. You have to be guided into that. You have to be led into the truth. People stumble into deception every day. But you're led intentionally into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He'll declare to you the things that are to come. So the Spirit of God is referred to as He. He. His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. So the Spirit of God says, abide in Christ. The Spirit of God compels people to believe the gospel. The Spirit of God teaches us so that, John says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now hold on. Why does God appoint teachers in the church? Why does God appoint people to have the gift of teaching? If indeed we don't have any need for anyone to teach us. Here's what he's saying. Hebrews 8.11. Because remember, there are people trying to deceive the church. People of Antichrist. They're denying the humanity of Christ. They're denying the divinity of Christ. They're denying... Um, they're bringing Gnostic teaching into the church, right? And they're trying to deceive believers. But the Spirit of God, the anointing of God, is uh, given to people to protect them from that. So Hebrews 8.11 says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor. This is God talking about those who have a new covenant through Christ. Okay, Those who would be a part of the new covenant. And you might say, it's only for Israel. Go read your Old Testament again. Verse 11 says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor, talking about those who are in the new covenant, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord! They'll all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In other words, those who have the law of God in their minds, in their hearts, right? And God makes a new covenant with these people through faith. Watch. I have no need. Key word, need. For you to tell me about God. Because I can know God myself. Now hold on. This doesn't mean that suddenly I don't need anyone to tell me anything about God. And whatever they tell me, I can disregard and not listen to because I have my relationship with God. He tells me what I need to know. And I don't need you. I'm a lone wolf. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't need to rely on any one person or any group to tell you who God is. Like Israelites saying, Moses, go up the mountain. Tell us about God. You know, now you and I can go up the mountain ourselves. Now you and I have the spirit of God within us to lead us into the truth. So that while we sit under sound teaching and we hear the truth taught to us by those who are in our community, right? We can discern through what they're saying because we have the same Holy Spirit. So John is not saying you don't need to learn from anyone about God anymore. Or now 
you can just go and lone wolf this Christianity. He's saying you don't need to look to anyone to tell you about God as if you don't know him yourself. Hebrews 8.11 teaches that in the New Covenant. That everyone can know God who is a child of God. When you have faith, you can know him yourself. You can actually know him better than your pastor. You can know him better than your favorite YouTube you know, Bible teacher. You can, you can know God with the same spirit. It's not a competition, but the point is we put people on pedestals. And, and we almost restrict ourselves and our growth to other people. And it's like, I only learn from, from two people. And I, I only let one person tell me about God and I don't read my Bible myself. I wait till Sunday service to learn about God. Really? Like, really? You have every day of the week, 24 hours in all of those seven days to know God. And you're going to wait for Sunday where for 30 to 40 minutes, someone's going to talk about God and that's going to be your theology. That's going to be your lifelong relationship with God. It's built on what someone else is telling you about God. Now, I should also, I'm not only should I learn about God myself in my own quiet time, as the Spirit of God leads me into the truth, but God has also provided for each of us godly teachers, those who are gifted to communicate the Scriptures. Like this ministry is designed to teach you how to read the Bible so you can live and teach the Bible yourselves. But don't rely on me. Don't rely on this ministry. Don't let this ministry alone form your view of God. Go and read the scriptures yourself. Test what I'm saying. Discern through what I'm saying. Like, watch the videos I'm, I'm putting out and read the scriptures yourself. Don't mindlessly receive as if only one person tells me about God and no one else. You should be discerning about who you trust. You should be thoughtful about who you listen to. But don't restrict your personal growth and relationship with God to any one person or any congregation or any branch of theology, right? Or any Southern Baptist convention, know God yourself. Be thoughtful about who you're learning from, right? But don't think, hey, I have the spirit of God. So I'm not going to listen to any teacher, any theologian, any scholar, any pastor, because hello, I have the spirit. God has provided you with teachers as a gift to build up your faith. So just think of me as a gift. That's it. I, I should supplement your faith. I'm not replacing it. I should not replace. There should never be one man you look to. Never this one person. Um, so we should be thoughtful and discerning and not mindlessly open to anyone and everyone, but also don't be this, um, again, a lone wolf Christian. The kind of, when he says there's no need for anyone to teach you, he's talking about these people who are trying to deceive. And you're probably more open to deception if you think that I can't know my God myself. I need you to tell me about God. No, you can know God yourself, but let teachers be supplementary. Let pastors and preachers be supplementary, right? Let theologians and scholars be supplementary. Let that supplement your faith, not be the, the entirety of your faith. Don't let your view of God just be someone else's. Know God yourself. Know God yourself. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. So we have the anointing of God to teach us about everything. There's two extremes. I don't need anyone to tell me about God. 
and I'm not in community and I'm not in fellowship because it's me and God against the world. Then there's the other extreme, which says I, I need people to tell me about God because I don't have a personal relationship myself. Avoid both extremes. Be open to learning and receiving correction and learning new things from other teachers God has placed in your life. But be thoughtful and discerning. Be thoughtful and discerning. I did say I would open the floor for some Q&A, so as a man of my word, I will do so. So if you guys have questions, drop them in the chat now. Now is your chance. Um, and then hopefully we'll get out of here at least maybe 10 to 15 minutes late for our Discord prayer time. I encourage you guys to join um, our online church through the Discord app. Um, just have fellowship like every single day. Pray with each other, talk with each other, talk through the scriptures, have Bible study. Amelia Chilius' question, where does your spirit live inside of you? I'll tell you immediately the location in my body of the Holy Spirit. I don't think I know the answer to, number one. And number two, uh, lovingly, uh, I don't think it matters where in my body, if, there isn't, if there's even a physical location the Spirit of God is restricted to in my body, which I don't think is a right view of seeing how God fills his people. Um, because there's a difference between the Holy Spirit and my spirit, right? My spirit comes alive by the presence of the Holy Spirit in me. Where that is, I would assume in, in the, at the epicenter of my essence, meaning I think he would be, um, and this is just me speculating about the mind, like Marcus says in Nefesh, uh, I would assume it would be the operation center of the person being that immaterial part of us. So maybe it's not a physical dimension, but, an, but more of an immaterial dimension. That's why Paul talks about how we are earthen vessels, uh, fragile vessels carrying around treasure. Um, but yeah, even if we did know the answer, it wouldn't change how we live. I'll say it like that. It's probably something fun to think about and to something people want to know. I don't know if there's a definitive answer, nor does it change how I live. It literally has no practical implications off the top of my head. So you can just tell them like, hey, if the Spirit of God is physically located in my stomach, or if the Spirit of God is physically located in, in, my, in my feet, does that change how I live? Or am I, either way, I'm going to submit to the Spirit of God and submit my spirit to His. Um, as we're waiting for questions, guys, if you guys did not already know, this is an entirely crowdfunded ministry, and I have a wife and two kids that I legitimately have to support, and this is my full-time job every single week, is what God has called me to. Uh, we have free online Bible study skills courses. You can join our online church here. Uh, you can get my book. That We have free study devotionals, free Bible study courses. We have uh, free Bible study workshops. We have uh, free... Um, all these videos are organized topically on YouTube. Um, and then the online church and all that community. All this is completely free because of generous supporters like you guys. 
you make all this content possible, man. This is this is why we do what we do. This is why my my wife, my two kids, and I moved to Florida from California to do this um, full time. And so, if you want to support what we're doing, our mission is to resource the church, move people towards Jesus, and we're doing that by teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. That's why we offer everything for free. We'll never charge anyone for anything. The only thing that costs money is my book, Fruitful, because it costs money for publishing. <laughs> so, the yeah, to pay back that I got to make some kind of money to pay for distribution and such and the annual renewal fees and all that. So you can get a copy of my book fruitful uh, if you're interested on Amazon or on my website, it's that book's going to give you the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life, this side of heaven. Uh, we have tons of free stuff. Again, join our online church. If you have not already every day, they're in there, man, praying, talking about Jesus, going through scriptures, Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, doing life. So if you want an online church and community, come join. It's on my website and in the YouTube description below. I don't see any more questions. Um, I'm looking. Uh, but also, if you want to give to this ministry and help us make all this content completely free to everyone around the world, um, you can donate uh, right here on this page. You can hear about our testimonials. You can give through your debit or credit card. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. We also have a Patreon account. So if you want to give on a monthly basis for like $4 or $10 or $20, um, you actually get exclusive benefits. So you get uh, access to my, my teaching material, all the sermon notes that I use for all these messages on YouTube. Like I make them available to you. Use them to lead your Bible studies. Use them to study. Do whatever you want with them. Um, you also get discounts on our church merch, Above Reproach Apparel, which you can see right here. Got some dope designs. Represent Jesus on your body. Carry, uh, I guess, Jesus on your shirts and make opportunities to evangelize and witness. So you get discount codes on that when you sign up through Patreon. And if you sign up for uh, the top two tiers, you get a copy of my book, physic physical copy um, or a digital copy or both depending on uh, the tier you sign up with. So we have monthly support. Um, you can give one time and all, again, we're entirely crowdfunded, you might say, um, by those of you that see the value in this and, and believe in what God is doing here. Um, do we get to watch your house church online? Uh, you guys can come to my house church. If you guys live near Green Cove Springs, Florida, come on over. Message me on Discord. Uh, message me, email me. Whatever you want. Thank you, James, for that. I'll see you guys in the Discord, too. So I'll be a little late, but it is what it is. But yeah, the church online, I haven't figured out how to do that well. Uh, hopefully soon, I'll be able to include you guys in that. My, the vision is to have each of you have a house church where you live as, an ex as a physical extension of this online ministry so that we would plant churches all around the world and, and reach our neighborhood and reach our community. And that we'd empower you to learn how to teach the Bible and, and lead people through scriptures and, and pray with people and, and you know, um, facilitate gatherings and such. That's the vision. So if you guys also want to, if you're thinking, hey, I actually want to have like a, a home church plant as an extension of this ministry, contact me, email me, um, message me on Instagram, on our, on our contact form on our website. If I have a personal question, is there a way to contact this ministry for those questions? 
Yes, Summer. So you can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. I should have said that. Um, right here is where you'll find everything. AboveReproachMinistry.com. You can just hit the contact button. Boom. And then you can submit a contact form or just email me directly. Right here. Contact at AboveReproachMinistry.com. Wants to open an email for some reason. So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'd love for you guys to participate in our online church somehow. I don't know what that looks like yet. I'll let you guys know. Alright guys, I don't see any... Is the spirit of the children stronger than adult? Um, I don't know how you'd even qualify that. What do you mean by stronger? Jesus does say to be like children. And what do you mean by spirit? Amazing Grace says, I'm getting an invalid address through Safari when I click on the invite. Let me see if it works for me. Hold on. Mine works. So it might be your browser. Or the device you're using. Um, I don't see any other questions. So, question. What does the Bible say about celebrating birthdays? What do you say about birthday celebrations? I say, enjoy celebrating and thanking God for giving you another year. If there's any pagan tradition attached to the concept of a birthday, disconnect that real fast and enjoy God and redeem that day unto Him. It's really that simple. But if you're convinced otherwise, follow the, your conscience. So. What are the differences between soul and spirit? Biblically, when the word splits soul from spirit, what does that mean? Hebrews doesn't necessarily split soul and spirit. It just notes the, the sharpness of the word. And so I don't think what we're supposed to walk away with is there's a separation between soul and spirit, at least from that passage. There might be biblical precedents to say the two are separated. I don't, I don't know why we would separate the two. Um, I guess in our entirety, we are soul, but then our spirit is dead, so that comes alive. So maybe there's a, dis a separation there. Um, but Hebrews, I believe, is talking more about uh, the the sharpness of God's word to divide what is individable. So I don't I wouldn't necessarily run to that. Maybe there's other scriptures to use, like speaking of uh, the soul being, well, the the entirety of me. Technically, I am a soul, and my body is actually an extension of that being a soul. We often disconnect the soul and the body, and um, maybe that's not how ancient Hebrews thought. Maybe the body was actually a part of being a soul. And that's why we get a glorified body. Uh, Kelly says, what about Christmas then? Yeah, I, I, I tell people the same thing with Christmas. If your conscience tells you don't celebrate Christmas, listen to your conscience. Um, if your reason for avoiding Christmas is uh, lack of education and uh, you don't know the scriptures that well, so you think... God is saying something he's not, then maybe educate yourself. And even if you do and you're like, I've read the scriptures, I know what it says, and you still feel convinced to not celebrate Christmas, man, do you. Do you. Why is it so difficult to repent? Off the top of my head, Vernon, I um, don't know. Pride. Pride probably the core of it 
I'm looking on Discord, uh, TikTok. Where in the Bible Jesus tells us he is God? Princess of God 1501. Um, head to my YouTube channel. It's right in the, like click my profile on TikTok. And then you'll see my, my list of links. Just click the YouTube channel. And then I have a video that's about five hours. It's about four and a half hours. <laughs> 55 reasons the Bible teaches Jesus is God. Someone said, please explain your highlighting color code, Jason. Um, it's different each time. People have asked me that a lot. Um, what's the system I use? Honestly, it's different each time. In this specific scenario, in 1 John, I'm highlighting every instance of those who are a part of the church. And then in red or pink, those who are not. Uh, and then yellow refers to anything related to uh, the things of God, truth. The anointing, knowledge, and then uh, blue talks about what people do. They either continue or they leave. So it's it, I don't have a color code system, man. It's different each time. Psalms uses soul almost exclusively in reverence. Perhaps the spirit is the product of soul and heart regeneration through Christ. Sure, sure. I think no matter what, all we're talking about when we say the spirit comes alive is you're lacking a dimension of life. You're lacking life in its fullness, and you need that. And I, I don't know if it helps us to, to know how to delineate between the soul and the spirit. Does it change how I live? Probably not. Does it change how you live? Probably not. Are we curious? Yeah. Why hasn't Hasatan, right, Marcus? Hasatan died because he sinned. Shouldn't he be dead already? Death is exile. Biblically, death is separation from God who is life. And since God is life, outside of him there is none. There's nothing but death. So he is, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. That was the death God promised. And then the byproduct of that separation from God is that the body now wastes away. And physical death is uh, the byproduct of that. But technically they are in death. They haven't been destroyed, whatever that's going to look like. Because it seems like God intends to throw them into, um, I forget what Revelation talks about. But it says like, hell is thrown into something like hell is thrown into the pit. Um, yeah, Revelation 20 verse 3. Let's pull it up. I'll show you. Uh, and he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and, and Satan. Okay, just to be clear, the serpent is the devil, Satan. And bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations. And then uh, I believe if you keep going. Ah, uh, uh, is this it? coming up um, I think it's Revelation Meh. Revelation 2014 oh here it is then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death so death and Hades itself were thrown into the lake of fire However metaphorical and symbolic you want to get with that. I know it goes deeper than that. I think that 
Marcus is, is trying to get you guys to go to the Discord. If you're not catching his hint, you should really catch it. He's trying to get you to join our online church because we have these discussions. This is, that's the place we have it. Um, I'll end with this question. Question. I see a huge debate on those that are remarried. Matthew 19, with the exception clause being only fornication, relations before marriage, should they divorce then your thoughts? Summer, I am, this is like one of those things I'm not educated on enough yet. Uh, Mike Winger has done like a 10-hour series on that or something like that. If you know who Mike Winger is, um, you can just YouTube his name, uh, Mike Winger, and then put like divorce and remarriage. It's a series he's done. That's as in-depth as you can possibly get. He is so thorough, and I could not be more thorough than him. Um, but I haven't studied that enough to really know the nuances of what's going on in that. But I would encourage you to watch that. So, alright guys, I think that's it for today. We have reached our maximum time. So we are gone. We're, we're done. Again, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. Check out everything, all these free resources, man. If you want to learn how to read the Bible, take your Bible study deeper. Join our online church, AboveReproachMinistry.com. All right. Bye, guys.